of the opportunities they've been given. Together, we have the same mission. Over the course of your life, you will find that things are not always fair. You will find that things happen to you that you do not deserve and that are not always warranted. But you have to put your head down and fight, fight, fight. Never, ever, ever give up. Don't give in, don't back down, and never stop doing what you know is right. Nothing worth doing ever, ever, ever came easy. And the more righteous your fight, the more opposition that you will face. In your hearts are inscribed the values of service, sacrifice, and devotion. Now you must go forth into the world and turn your hopes and dreams into action. America has always been the land of dreams because America is a nation of true believers. When the pilgrims landed at Plymouth, they prayed. When the founders wrote the Declaration of Independence, they invoked our Creator four times. Because in America, we don't worship government, we worship God. It is why our currency proudly declares, in God we trust. And it's why we proudly proclaim that we are one nation under God. The story of America is the story of an adventure that began with deep faith, big dreams, and humble beginnings. The next generation of American leaders never, ever give up. There'll be times in your life You'll want to quit, never quit. Never stop fighting for what you believe in and for the people who care about you. Carry yourself with dignity and pride. Demand the best from yourself. The more people tell you 
it's not possible, that it can't be done, the more you should be absolutely determined to prove them wrong. Treat the word impossible as nothing more than motivation. Relish the opportunity to be an outsider. The more that a broken system tells you that you're wrong, the more certain you should be that you must keep pushing ahead. You must keep pushing forward. And always have the courage to be yourself. America is better when people put their faith into action. Pray to God and follow his teachings. Today, each of you begins a new chapter as well. When your story goes from here, it will be defined by your vision, your perseverance, and your grit. You will build a future where we have the courage to chase our dreams no matter what the cynics and the doubters have to say. You will have the confidence to speak the hopes in your hearts and to express the love that stirs your souls. As long as you have pride in your beliefs, courage in your convictions, and faith in God, then you will not fail. As long as America remains true to its values, loyal to its citizens, and devoted to its creator, then our best days are yet to come. May God bless the class of 2017. May God bless the United States of America. And I just want to let you know that God blesses you. And I want to just say, you are special in every way. God bless you and God bless America. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you. Now, I know a lot of people needed to hear that. People are feeling defeated. But before I start uh, the show today, I wanted to say um, I was so sad yesterday uh, when I found out that um, well, Kristen passed away. I had um, I was supposed to go out to see her after New Year's at a friend's house, a common friend's house, and um, I told her that my plans my plans had changed, but she was in hospital um, with an pneumonia. So, you know, at the, that was the last time I communicated was the fact that I had uh, a working trip and that maybe if I go to Arizona, I'll hop over to her place. The last time she called me was right after, like around, um, I think the first week of December. Let me check, actually. And we talked for a bit. We laughed. She actually called me because she was worried that Bergie was going to kill me. She was over his house or something. And um, he was really rude and aggressive, she said. Um, there it is. And she sent me the invite uh, for New Year's for myself and other people. So, yeah. So it was December 1st when she called. She said, you know, your friend was by here. Really not good. Um, and she was worried about me. And um, I showed her a video that someone had made, obviously to mock her, right? But I'm going to play it. 
not because it mocks her, but it reminds us exactly why we loved her. Um, and we were watching it together and we were laughing. And you guys know this side of Kristen, the flipping of the hair, right, that she does all the time. And I think in her memory, she would love us um, to laugh and remember her, just how amazing she was, how funny she was. She had great comedic timing as well. I don't know if a lot of people know her for that. I, I loved her comedic timing. And um, she was actually, uh, you know, she was always looking after herself. And Kirsten, you know, would always um, try to, uh, you know, her laugh. Okay, hold on. I know this is supposed to be a mocking one, but me and her watched it together and she was like, oh my God. And I was like, you do flip your hair a lot. But um, I think this is the funniest and the most, um, uh, okay, Biscuit, God, one week I'm away and this cat won't leave me alone. Um, and I think it's it, it'll be fun for us to watch. It's just amazing. One of the great things to come out. So Tori just got through. Hey. Hey Tori, when are you going to be on? <laughs> hey, hey Tori, when are you going to be on? <laughs> she always had that laugh, didn't she? It was like amazing. And um, I thought all of us should remember that. Uh, you know, I thought all of us should remember just how her laugh was and how she would flip her hair. Hold on. Wait, there was, oh, did, wait, 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 wait. I have the longer. It was just amazing. One of the great things to come out. So Tori just got through. Hey, hey Tori, when are you going to be on? <laughs> hey, hey Tori, when are you going to be on? <laughs> hey, hey Tori, when are you going to be on? I'm sharing you with um, Millie Weaver. <laughs> okay, husband, I told you I didn't like them because they were um, liberal millennials. <laughs> Tell me, you guys, how many of you love that laugh of hers? Whenever she would laugh, she was infectious, right? And she would flip her hair, right? She was very smart, right? Um, she was, she had good intentions. See, uh, one thing, you know, she could have been wrong on a lot of things, right? But one thing I can tell you about her is even though I didn't agree with a lot of the information she put out, she had good intentions. Her intentions were always good. And that's um, what matters, right? To remember her with the flipping hair and the infectious laugh, the ha 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 that she used to do. Um, and just how, you know, she was uh, just good. She had good intentions, you guys. See, it doesn't matter if people are wrong, if, if, if they put things, you know, cause I would tell her, don't, no, don't say that. She's like, no, my source, no, no, no. Um, but it's okay. Cause her intentions were always good, always good. And she was very smart, you know, very smart. I'm pretty sure all of you can hear this. That is my cat purring. Yeah, he sounds like a machine. Um, so she had really good intentions and that's what matters. And she always, um, you know, always had my good interests. Uh, and I had hers. I mean, she was a good person. Now, I wanted to say something on that. As, as we understand, there are 
a lot of people that have gotten vaccinated, a lot of people that haven't gotten vaccinated. But one thing that we're seeing is an increase in bacterial pneumonia. And it seems to be very, um, he won't stop purring. I'm sorry. He's going to be on the show with us today. Um, it, there seems to be, um, a strain that may be resistant to normal, um, B cell immunity. And, um, what I realized was if it is that infectious, right? It's the masks. Um, one thing I learned in school <clears throat> when we were going around clinicals, like it was more surgery and interventional radiology where we were trained and even on, um, on stations, you know, fitted obviously for the N95 masks, et cetera. Uh, we were told that we shouldn't be wearing mask, uh, masks when, um, uh, you know, for a prolonged period of time because we can get an infection, a bacterial infection. And so what I, I would strongly urge because I did that too is if you see that you have that deep hurting cough and with your regimen of great vitamin C rest in water, it doesn't go. See a physician. A simple antibiotic will, uh, take away uh, more dangerous things to come. Uh, try, I try not to wear my mask as much as possible when I'm traveling. Um, I eat a lot of M&Ms. So many of them. <laughs> I had like black braces on my flight back. Um, so the bacterial pneumonia that I'm seeing that's spreading, and it's been over about three weeks now, and I was looking at the numbers on the airplane on the second leg of my trip, what concerned me the most was that it was highly infectious and it was uh, not, not a simple bacterial infection, meaning it was, it seemed more like it was acting like MRSA. Uh, which is more antibiotic resistant. And that could be um, a more stronger type strain. I don't know. I'm still looking at it. But um, if you guys remember when I uh, was um, dosed with something that caused me severe illness, I had aspirated and uh, I went to the doctor and it was bronchitis and a quick regimen of antibiotics made it go. So I know a lot of people don't want to go to the hospital. They don't want to be seen. And remember, you can always pull the liberal card, right? You can always say you don't want, uh, you know, communications. You don't want interaction. You can use the liberal card and keep the distance and be seen remotely, it's just really important that if you do see that your body is not purging whatever infection you may have, and you know when you have an infection, simply go and get some antibiotics. If you don't have any on tap yourself, uh, usually the ones that are provided are Z-Packs or uh, broad-spectrum Bactrim is given um, in order to get that gram-type bacteria. I just thought I would mention that um, in her memory, uh, she was a so she was a great person, and um, I'm very sad that um, she's gone because she was a she was fun, and I loved her laugh and the flipping of the hair. Now.
Today, I thought that we should look at calendars. It was very interesting that all of these um, all these um, channels that I look at that are large in size have all been discussing calendars. But for you guys to understand the calendar that I was referring to, it's important to understand the Roman Republic. So we're going to start with that today. We're going to start with the Roman Republic. It's a, it's a clip called History Resummarized. Here we go. Distinctly uninsightful. Because honestly, at face value, it kind of is. That phrase is winking at you so hard it's practically wearing an eye patch. But if instead of just Rome the city, we think about Rome the culture, Rome the institution, Rome the sea-conquering empire, that phrase starts to actually say something. Rome, as I hope this video series will show, was really special. There's honestly nothing like it. And I think it's important to appreciate not just what Rome became, but how much slow, careful, calculated effort was put into its creation. And as you'll see in a minute, early Roman history is a notoriously slow burn. Generation after generation dedicated themselves to something they'd never see the end of. And I just think that's really cool. So, let's do some history. If we jump into our handy-dandy time machines and go all the way back to the beginning of Roman history, we'll be looking at an actively on-fire city, which happens to be Troy. Yep. The plot twist is that the Romans are actually descendants of the Trojans. According to Roman tradition, one specific Trojan, named Aeneas, who fled the burning city on the orders of his mother Venus to sail around the Mediterranean in search of Italy. This story comes to us most clearly in Virgil's epic poem, The Aeneid. After a run-in with Queen Dido of Carthage and a journey through scenic hell, Aeneas and crew arrived on the plain of Latium in central Italy. To make matters more Italian, the very first thing they do when they arrive is eat pizza. Wow. We're not even two minutes in, and we're already establishing over 3,000 years of stereotypes. I can't even be mad, that's just really efficient. Fast forward a few hundred years after Aeneas to 753 BC, and the brothers Romulus and Remus, who were raised by a wolf, got into a kerfuffle of sorts while building some walls around their village, and Romulus ended up murdering Remus in what became the most etymologically significant fratricide in world history. That, kids, is why it's called Rome and not Reem. Anyway, Romulus claimed kingship over his newly walled village, and over the next two and a half centuries, seven kings oversaw Rome's transformation from backwater town to moderately cool city. And even that wasn't a guarantee. Most of the action in world history up to this point happened in Mesopotamia and the eastern Mediterranean. Rome is all the way on the west coast of Italy. I don't think I can overstate how completely irrelevant Rome was in the broader Mediterranean arena for the first 500 years of its history. Rome, as we know, ended up conquering most of the known classical world, but a majority of its early history was simply a spirited back and forth between its neighbors. The Etruscans to the north, the Samnites to the south, and later on, the Greek colonies of Magna Graecia to the way further south. And by spirited, I do literally mean they were stabbing each other with spears. While all of this neighborly murdery business was going on, the city of Rome was building itself up both physically and institutionally, with walls, streets, a sewer system, stone temples and buildings, a governmental system reminiscent of the Greek polis system, and a religious system reminiscent of the Greek pantheon. Man, that Greek influence really got in there early. All of this was going on all nice and well until, in 509 BC, the Romans thought that their king, Tarquin the Proud, aka Tarquinius Superbus, aka Tarky Tark Superbus, was a total knob. And they were getting kinda tired of being ruled, so they kicked him out, swore never to have another king again, and officially created the Roman Republic. 
institutionally speaking, a lot of the mechanics of the Republic were already in place, like the Senate, the patrician nobility, and the Citizen Assembly, for instance. The transition to a Republic was really more of a reorganization of authority than a political revolution or anything like that. Broadly speaking, the whole idea was to take their government and publicize the power so the people could participate. And the word Republic comes from the Latin res publica, which just means public thing. Structurally, the government was controlled by two annually elected consuls. The praetors ran the justice system, and the quaestors, the silliest Roman name ever, managed state finances. The aediles were responsible for the state of the city, so they handled food, games, infrastructure, and all that jazz. The Senate, though it didn't directly legislate anything, published opinions on policy that were often very quickly put in place by their respective officers down the chain. Almost all of these magistrates and senators in the early Republic were of the patrician nobility. If you happened to be one of Rome's many plebeians, you might have rightly felt a little left out of this supposed race publica. The plebeians unsurprisingly wanted political and social rights, and they were determined to acquire them. So on any given season of campaigning against Rome's bothersome neighbors, the plebeians, who composed the majority of the army, simply went on strike. They'd just go sit on a hill and wait until the Senate granted them the right to marry patricians, or to have their own government positions in special assembly, or to elect their own members of that special assembly, or to serve as consul. And then by 287 BC, the plebeians and the patricians were equal in everything but name. Good for them. Institutionally, the Roman Republic simultaneously had elements of a monarchy, an aristocracy, and a democracy. This mixed constitution and its flexibility in governance, according to the historian Polybius, was one of Rome's greatest strengths, and I'm inclined to agree. Rome's institutions were its backbone for over a thousand years, and that's darn impressive. Okay, enough of the politicky stuff. Back to the stabby stuff. Now, like I said, early Roman Republican history is a notoriously slow burn. The struggle for plebeians' rights took over two centuries, and conquering the Italian peninsula was similarly slow going. Rome was intent on being careful, taking small steps, and taking its time. Recall how in the aftermath of both the Macedonian and Mongol conquests, when you go too far, too fast, things tend to fracture. Rome spent most of the 4th and early 3rd centuries fighting with various neighbors and working its way down to only the Bay of Naples. That's a pretty short way to go in so long a time. They were being really careful. Key to Rome's military strategy was the doctrine of expanding defense. Essentially, Rome would never be so brash as to go out and attack someone. Good heavens no, Rome had the good manners to only fight in self-defense, and they knew that their gods would only grant them victory if their war was a just and pious war. But, if Rome suspected that someone was going to attack them, Rome would absolutely shoot first. Uh, defensively, of course. A preemptive retaliatory strike, if you will. And that is how you go on to conquer the entire world, defensively. By 280, Rome had successfully yoinked all of Samnium and proceeded to set its sights at Magna Graecia, in southern Italy. Magna Graecia, not being the biggest fans of the Romans and wishing to keep their land thank you very much, sent for help from Greece proper, and they brought in the big guns. Specifically, they imported the Hellenistic king Pyrrhus of Epirus. Pyrrhus fought two battles against the Romans, and even though he won both of them, his losses were so devastating that he bailed on the campaign. After a detour through Sicily, he fought the Romans again, lost, and went home for good. Pyrrhus' abilities to win battles, coupled with his inability to not burn through a third of his army in the process, is what gives us the term Pyrrhic victory. So, uh, good on Pyrrhus for eternally tethering his name to the military equivalent of pulling five consecutive all-nighters to cram for a test. Yeah, it's a win, but was it worth it? 
So with pretty much no one left to protect Magna Graecia, Rome proceeded to swoop in and colonize all over the place. And unlike those who employ the torch it and start over method of conquest, the Romans had a good track record of being kind to conquered peoples. Except for this next example, from a rather salty chapter in Roman history. The Punic Wars against Carthage. Part 2. The first war can be roughly attributed to a miscommunication with some Sicilian pirates. While Carthage and Rome may have been destined to fight each other at some point or another, they ultimately came to blows on account of both being called into Sicily to settle a fight between the city of Syracuse and some rowdy pirates. Rome and Carthage kind of just tripped face-first into war, and spent most of the 23-year-long war not actually fighting each other. The issue was Carthage had been a long-standing naval power in the Mediterranean, but Rome had no navy to speak of. So Rome really needed a navy, and quick. This is another of many instances of Rome adapting to situations really well. Say what you will about Rome, they were immensely clever and had a great habit of taking good ideas, methods, technologies, and techniques from other cultures and using them to great effect. In this case, the Romans found a few beached and sunk Carthaginian triremes and quinquiremes and proceeded to reverse engineer an entire fleet of ships. You know, just casually, as you do. Rome's first aquatic outings weren't all that fruitful, but at battles like Cape Ignomus, which is arguably one of the biggest naval battles in history, Rome pulled out wins. Ultimately, Rome won the war, claiming Sicily for itself and forcing heavy reparations on Carthage. They also decided to take Corsica and Sardinia because, screw you Carthage, these are mine now. In the decades following, the Carthaginians, led by the general Hamilcar Barca, colonized the seaside coast of Spain, largely for the purposes of mining silver to pay their Roman reparations. Little did Rome know, Hamilcar, his son Hannibal, and the other Carthaginians in Spain were furious over losing Sicily, Corsica, and Sardinia, and had been casually scheming to completely destroy Rome for almost two whole decades. In 219 BC, Hannibal sacked the Roman allied Saguntum in Spain, and Rome, defensively of course, declared war. Hannibal, the madman, proceeded to rather famously Leroy Jenkins his way across the goddamn Alps with over 40,000 soldiers and 37 elephants. Elephants! And while elephants aren't particularly scary to us, if you're an ancient Roman who's never seen an elephant before, that thing is a four-legged giant with two spears and a snake coming out of its face. Bottom line, they're monsters. The Romans thought they were monsters. Granted, most of Hannibal's elephants died while crossing the Alps, perhaps unsurprisingly, but it doesn't take a lot of elephants to have a scary amount of elephant on the battlefield. I genuinely can't convey how viscerally terrifying the mere mention of Hannibal's name would have been to a Roman. Anyway, after arriving in Italy, Hannibal demonstrated his tactical brilliance by immediately winning two battles in northern Italy through guerrilla and ambush tactics. Hannibal and his armies would proceed to stay in Italy, effectively behind enemy lines with next to no means of supply or reinforcement, for 16 years. The Carthaginians went up and down the peninsula, setting fire to farms left and right, hoping above all else for Rome to simply surrender. Two years into the campaign, Hannibal said, alright, screw this, I'm gonna destroy the entire Roman army, and proceeded to make plans for his next battle, at the Roman supply depot at Cannae in southern Italy. At the battle, the Carthaginians advanced in a U-shape, with 40,000 infantry forming the front line and 10,000 cavalry on the wings. The Romans, however, had almost twice as big an army, so they felt pretty good about their chances. The armies met, and as the fighting progressed, the center of the Carthaginian line fell back, and the Romans pushed forward, hoping to break the retreating line. 
Except at that moment when they all rushed in, the Carthaginians' African infantry and famed Numidian cavalry advanced on the flanks and effectively enveloped the whole Roman army. From there, it was a bloodbath. Estimates are all over the place, but the gist is that most of the 80,000 strong Roman army was killed outright and the rest were imprisoned. The slaughter went on until nightfall, and in one version of the story I've heard, the Carthaginians only started taking prisoners because their arms got tired from all the killing. It was the single greatest defeat that Rome ever suffered in its history. And Hannibal hoped that a shattered and dismayed Rome, having lost 16 legions in the entire south of Italy, would surrender at once. Rome's response was simply, see you next year and it spent the entire winter raising more armies to go out the following summer. For the next several years, the Roman army pursued the strategy of just bother him and shadowed Hannibal around the Italian countryside. He was still being annoying, but he wasn't a direct threat to the city of Rome, so good enough for now. But jumping back, can we take a second to appreciate the sheer quintessential Roman badassery it takes to hear that you lost at least 50,000 soldiers and then turn around and tell the guy who killed them to shove it and wait for round two? Because holy crap, that takes some serious coleones. Serious and massively suicidal coleones. And speaking of, in 211, the young Publius Cornelius Scipio took up a generalship for the Spanish campaign, which was widely considered to be a suicide mission. To the surprise of basically everyone, he spent the next five years successfully decarthagifying Spain to great effect. Following his campaign, he hatched a brilliant plan to take the fight back to Carthage. The Senate, thinking this was another suicide mission, told him he could do it, but they wouldn't finance his armies. So Scipio raised a couple legions in Italy and Sicily and hopped over to North Africa. Now, while Hannibal is absolutely a brilliant general in that he did impossibly crazy stuff like crossing the Alps, campaigning in Italy for 16 years, and wiping out an entire Roman army, Scipio's brilliance came from his quintessentially Roman ability to adopt and adapt. The Romans, above all else, knew a good idea when they saw one, and they almost never made the same mistake twice. Scipio studied Cannae, and he knew what he had to do to defeat Carthage. Since the Numidian cavalry was critical to the Carthaginian army, Scipio played into a Numidian civil war to get some of their cavalry for himself. In doing so, he had massively weakened Carthage on their own soil, and had nearly orchestrated their surrender when, oh snap, Hannibal's back! And on that day, history nerds from all around the world and across time busted out the popcorn because this is gonna be good. The night before the impending Battle of Zama, Hannibal and Scipio actually, supposedly, had a meeting. It's detailed in Livy's History of Rome, Book 30, Chapters 30 and 31. Just read it, okay? For me. Read it. It's incredible. First, they're simply in awe of each other. Then, Hannibal waxes philosophical about fortune, gives Scipio life advice, and asks for peace. Scipio responded, Well, I was going to make peace, but then you brought an army here. I can't just leave now. Look, Hannibal, I respect you. I really do. And you're leaving me no choice here, man. I've just got to kick your ass, dude. I'm sorry. There's no other way. I have to kick your ass. And on the following day, some asses were certainly kicked. At the Battle of Zama, Scipio's Numidian cavalry put the Carthaginian cavalry to flight, and fighting between the infantry lines was actually very close until the Roman cavalry returned from behind the Carthaginian line to ultimately win the day. It was a hard-fought and super-tense battle, but with that, the Second Punic War was won. 
half a century and a lot of Cato the Elder ending all of his speeches with Carthago de Lenda est later, Rome returns to raise Carthage to the ground. To rub more salts in the wound, the Romans also literally rubbed salts in the earth to make sure the Carthaginians would never rise again. So this is one part. We're going to continue it tomorrow. The reason that I wanted you guys to see that is that over a period of, uh, you know, 200 years and being annihilated, <clears throat> the original Rome, uh, Roman Catholic, the original Rome would never give up, right? They would never give up. They had nothing. They had the opposition in their country campaigning for 16 years, right? And they still didn't give up while he was in their country trying to sway people to come to his kingdom and no, no, no. They didn't give up. That should tell you everything you need to know in regards to resilience. 200 years, guys, they were fighting these wars, 200 years. Now, the reason that I wanted to bring you back to that time of original Rome uh, is because, lo and behold, people are now making videos about how people count years. And I thought it's important for you guys to understand how calendars are done. This video was released on the final day of 2021 AD, that is, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, the year, by a misguided medieval reckoning, since the nativity of Jesus, AD and its alter ego CE are so familiar that they seem indispensable, and it can be easy to assume that the Greeks and Romans used something similar. This, however, is not the case. Counting years is by no means a universal custom. Most historical societies had calendars, key to the cycles of the sun and moon, which served to mark the agricultural seasons, situate festivals, and establish a temporal frame for public business. But relatively few societies have counted years the way we do. The ancient Greeks certainly did not. During the classical period, almost every Greek city had its own dating system, just as it had its own calendar and laws. In Athens, for example, an official called the eponymous Archon gave his name to the year. At Sparta, the year was named after one of the ephors. At Argos, the priestess of Hera had that honor. The dizzying array of dating conventions created headaches for ancient Greek historians who had to either pick a single dating system, like the Athenian Archon lists, or craft cumbersome synchronisms. It was possible, however, to build long-term chronologies. Perhaps the most famous example is the Parian Marble, an inscribed chronicle recording events from 1582 to 298 BC. The best-known Greek attempt at a systematic chronology was the Olympiad system, pioneered by the historian Timaeus and systematized by Eratosthenes in the 3rd century BC. This system dated events in relation to the Olympic Games, which had been held every four years since, by Eratosthenes' calculations, our 776 BC. An event that took place in 480 BC was thus the year of the 75th Olympiad. The Olympiad system was useful for historians, but it never became standard like the modern AD system and it seems to have never been referenced in daily life. The only Greek dating system remotely similar to A.D. was the system used by the Seleucids, the dynasty that inherited the vast central block of Alexander's empire. The first year of the Seleucid era corresponded to our 312 to 311 B.C. and commemorated Seleucus I's conquest of Babylon. The Seleucid era was used throughout the Near East and long outlasted the Seleucids themselves. It persisted, in fact, beyond the Arab conquests, 
and was used until the 20th century by the Yemeni Jewish community. Like the Greeks, the Romans dated their years by annual magistrates. In their case, the two ordinary consuls, who took office by the imperial era on January 1st, for formal and legal purposes, it was customary to name both consuls. More casually, only one might be mentioned. For example, the famously good wine produced in 121 BC was conventionally called Opimian wine, after Opimius, one of that consular dating remained standard throughout Roman history. Roman scholars, however, sometimes referenced what we call ab urbe condita dates, counting the years since the foundation of Rome. There was never a definitive date, then as now historians disagreed about polymath Vero, 753 BC, was the most widely accepted. Like the Olympiad system, dating from the foundation of Rome, was a convention used more or less exclusively by historians, though referenced on at least one coin issue, the ab urbe condita date, only impinged on daily life, on those rare occasions when the emperors marked the anniversary of Rome's foundation. Claudius, for example, celebrated Rome's 800th birthday in 47 AD. 201 years later, Philip the Arab marked the city's millennium with a spectacular series of games. Although consular dating persisted into late antiquity, two new systems appeared. The first was the indiction, a 15-year tax cycle used widely for dating from the 4th century onward. This convention sometimes causes problems for modern historians, since the indiction cycles were not counted, and it can be unclear which year is being referenced. The other new convention, which appeared in the 6th century, was formal dating by the emperor's regnal year. Far more important than either of these developments, however, was the rise of Christianity, which produced new means and motives for calculating a universal chronology. At first, Christian scholars focused on determining the date of the creation, a matter of practical interest, since some were convinced that the world would end 6,000 years after it was made. After much effusion of ink and ecclesiastical bile, Greek scholars settled on 5509 BC as the beginning of time and dated their chronicles accordingly. From the early Middle Ages onward, however, thanks largely to differences between Greek and Latin texts of the Bible, scholars in Western Europe preferred a date around 4000 BC. Egyptian Christians preferred, and still prefer, to use the Era of the Martyrs, which began in 284 with the accession of Diocletian. The most important Christian contribution to chronology, however, occurred in the 6th century, when the AD system appeared. Its inventor was Dionysius Exiguus, an unassuming Roman monk noted for his mathematical ability. While computing the dates on which Easter would fall in the coming years, Dionysius devised a system for counting years from the birth of Jesus. He never intended to create a universal dating system, yet this, slowly and accidentally, AD became. AD caught on first in Anglo-Saxon England, thanks largely to the 8th century scholar Bede, who employed it in some of his works on chronology and history. It was widespread in France and western Germany by the late 9th century, and common throughout Italy by the end of the 10th. The Spanish kingdoms had an era of their own, and resisted AD until the 13th and 14th centuries. Even once the system had been generally adopted, AD dates were used almost exclusively in ecclesiastical and academic contexts until the early modern period. Remarkably, BC only became common in the late 18th century. Our friend Dionysius got his numbers wrong when estimating the date of Jesus' birth, which almost certainly did not take place in 1 AD. But that doesn't really matter. AD has never been, and was never meant to be, anything more than a convention. It is, however, 
a useful convention, at least for YouTube historians. And as we plunge into this chronological construct that we so blithely call 2022, I'd like to wish you all a happy and healthy new year. Thanks for watching. Now, the calendar um, that he explained was the first calendar of the founding of the original Rome, uh, the first civilization. And with the coming of Christianity in the 6th century, they say, but it was actually uh, dated back to 1, 1 AD was his death. Was it 49 AD that they marked like the 50th anniversary of his death or something like that? The history is a little bit muddled only because <clears throat> every single nation uh, would, I get to celebrate. Would, would have to say their own time. Uh, just like uh, it was explained in Greece, each city would have its own time. They would go by cycle or by games. And up until today, you see, we have Olympics every four years. And that's something that the Greeks had started in about uh, around 2000 BC. So uh, time is who dictates what time is. Uh, in the past, only I'd have to say uh, decade, maybe even two, our seasons have been changing. I remember the sweet spot as a kid uh, that, uh, you know, the last week of August, you could smell the crisp air. It was fall. You would wear a long sleeve shirt. And uh, in September, you'd be wearing your jean jacket. And then uh, you'd start to put on a little bit of a jean jacket and a sweater in the beginning of October. And when you'd go trick-or-treating, you would wear a sweater underneath or sweatpants so you can maintain some warmth, right? And then November would be, uh, you know, more winter. You would get your snow. And then in, at the end of February, beginning of March, you would get that crisp spring, right? But now it's not like that. Winter begins after January. It's like I'm seven months ahead and it's almost as if our calendars are five months behind in the sense of when they start and when they happen. And that could do due to mathematical uh, accuracy. Um, when we were in Florida and we had this conversation, uh, you know, with friends, especially when the moon like totally disappeared, we were like, okay, we were just watching that. Uh, mathematics is key and important, but astrologers are also struggling. It's been a, a trend and Gavin reminded me of that trend of creating that 13th Zodiac sign because they're not understanding why, you know, Sagittarius is in sun right now when that usually happens at the end of November and beginning of December. So it seems like they're dealing with the Y2K computer mathematical balancing, right? But not the astral, which was always a map. Now today for me and many other um, Orthodox Christians, it's Christmas and I wanted to have someone else explain to you the difference between the two calendars so you can see it from another perspective and it's not just my mouth saying it. Please enjoy. Great Christmas twice. American Christmas on December 25th and Russian Christmas on January 7th. That's because Russian Jesus was born on a different day from American Jesus. 
Actually, no. The real reason why Russians celebrate Christmas on January 7th is because of the Julian and Gregorian calendars, which I'll cover in this video. Our story begins in Rome, Italy, during the year 45 BC. By that point, Julius Caesar had already spent 13 years fighting in wars and separating heads from necks. So he settled down to engage in a different sort of hobby, calendar reform. Back then, the Roman calendar was 355 days long, 10 days shorter than the 365 days it takes for the Earth to go around the Sun, which we'll call the solar calendar. With each passing year, the Roman calendar would drift further and further away from the solar calendar. To fix this, the Romans would insert a leap month in between February and March to bring the Roman calendar back in alignment with the solar calendar. This worked great in theory, except the Roman high priest was the one who decided when to add a leap month to a year. The high priest would often extend the year by one month if his political allies were elected in order to give them more time in office. Or he could conveniently forget to add in a leap month if he was unhappy with whoever was elected. In the years before Julius Caesar seized control, the Roman calendar drifted way out of alignment with the solar calendar. Imagine that your calendar is so wrong that it starts snowing in April. Julius Caesar was equally displeased, so he ordered mathematicians and astronomers to create a new science-based calendar. Under this new system, there would be three years with 365 days each, followed by a leap year when one day gets added to the end of February. The Julian calendar was used as the standard timekeeping system in Europe for over 1,600 years. But as the centuries continued, the calendar's minor flaws became magnified. Each year in the Julian calendar is exactly 365 days and 6 hours long. But the solar year is actually a tiny bit shorter than that. The difference is unnoticeable in a human lifespan, but every 128 years, the Julian calendar falls one day behind the solar year. By 1582, even the Julian calendar had drifted almost two weeks out of alignment, and Julius Caesar was too dead to fix it. That's when Pope Gregory XIII stepped in to clean up the divergent calendars. He shortened each year of the Julian calendar by almost 12 minutes to be really close to the length of the solar year. Pope Gregory also set the start date of his new calendar to align Easter with the spring equinox. This new and improved Gregorian calendar is the one we still use today. It's so accurate that it will only fall behind the solar year by one day every few thousand years, rather than one day every hundred or so. If any of you are watching this in the year 200,000, I suggest you realign your calendars once again and name it Svetlana's calendar. Now that we know about the Julian and Gregorian calendars, we can finally understand why Russians celebrate Christmas in January. January 7th on the modern Gregorian calendar is equivalent to December 25th on the older Julian calendar. The Gregorian calendar is currently 13 days ahead of the Julian calendar, but the gap continues to grow every year. In March of 2100, the gap between the Julian calendar and the Gregorian calendar will widen to 14 days, which means Russian Christmas will take place on January 8th. To make things more confusing, Russians don't celebrate all of their holidays 13 days later. Russia as a country adopted the Gregorian calendar in 1918, but the Russian Orthodox Church still uses the older Julian calendar. This means that non-religious Russian holidays use the Gregorian calendar date. 
But holidays like Christmas and Easter are celebrated based on the Julian calendar date. Why can't the Russian Orthodox Church get with the program and adopt the more accurate Gregorian calendar? Well, the Eastern Orthodox Churches and the Roman Catholic Church grew apart in the Middle Ages. They couldn't agree on important details like whether or not to use yeast in their holy biscuits. These irreconcilable differences led to a vicious divorce in 1054 when each side excommunicated the other. Pope Gregory was Roman Catholic, so when he made his own calendar, the Eastern Orthodox churches boycotted him and are still boycotting him today. Thanks to two dead Italian guys and their calendars, Russian Americans like me have an excuse to celebrate Christmas twice every year. If you're interested in Russian Christmas traditions, check out my previous video about Santa Claus versus Grandfather Frost. And don't forget to subscribe for everything you never wanted to know. She actually has some really good content. So basically, as you can see, as time goes on, if calendars are not calibrated, they change. And this was always to keep uh, ahead in times for harvests. The stars are your map. And so the stars, solar calendar, doesn't align with your math or what's convenient, then, you know, you have problems. Because let's pretend that for some reason, instead of daylight savings, now they told us it's December, right? That means we would have spring in four months, five months, rather than three or four months, depending on where you are. It's about changing time because time ever so expands and therefore changes. Could be because it's toroidal, but who knows? I want to take a quick break and I'll be right back. Hey guys, it is the year of the tiger. And now is where we go on, I would like to say, offense. All this time, the people have been playing defense, and now it's time to get to the offense. Today, those of you that had heard the SCOTUS hearing were sad and devastated, especially when there was some fake news going around. But I don't know if all of you sat to hear the CMS hearing too, which was the, the saddest one of them all. But it was very interesting listening to it as much as I could because I was in between flights uh, when it began. But it was quite fascinating to hear how they were orchestrating the discussions. Now, on January 6th, the president of the United States was supposed to have a press conference. It's fantastic that he did not. I kind of felt that it was the wrong thing to do only because they would use that against him. I know a lot of people say it's Lindsey Graham. It's not. I'm glad that he did not do it on that day, even though I'm sure he was not glad. He wanted to, uh, uh, I would say, do a remembrance, but it was no need to. I wanted us to now together watch the Glenn Beck interview 
but my cat harasses me insanely, uh, with President Trump on January 6th. Take a listen. One of them said this, but it was the reflection of all of them. Please tell the president we have not forgotten what he did for us and what he sacrificed for us. Um, We really need to hear now, can we get out of this mess? Um, There's the deep state, the GOP, school choice, China and Taiwan, Russia and uh, Ukraine, the gas prices, the FBI targeting uh, parents. I'd like to I'd like to start with you on the economy and and talk to me about how we can turn it around and what does permanent damage. So on the economy, is this just the natural consequence of shutting the world down for a pandemic? Or is this the policies that have been coming out? So inflation's a big word, and stagflation's uh, even worse, if you think of it. We have lots of both. And a lot of that's caused, in my opinion, by energy. They shut our energy off. They got rid of Anwar. Can you believe that? After many, many decades, Ronald Reagan tried to do it. He couldn't. We got it done. And Lisa Murkowski, who's a disaster senator out there, approved somebody. Her vote was the final vote, whose first order was to close up Anwar. That's the biggest drilling site, maybe bigger than Saudi Arabia in Alaska and so many other things. But, you know, it all begins with energy because it just the trucks, the cars, the everything, the bakeries, the ovens, the stoves, everything, the planes, everything. It's such a big number. And when I left, it was a dollar eighty seven a gallon for gasoline. Now it in California was just announced seven dollars and seventy seven cents. And the rest is all following. And they're not What they're doing now is because they believe that we have to be petroleum free. Which is just crazy. Insane. We are not ready, even in 10 years. Can't we, is there a way to focus and and, um, uh, get the entrepreneurs to work on the things for the future while still pumping petroleum? So you have both. We're reaching for the future, but we're not killing ourselves at the same time. So one thing is the other technology does not have the power to fire up our plants. It just doesn't have the power. Wind is extremely expensive. By the way, the turbines are all made in Germany and they're all made in China, Mm -hmm. those two places. And assuming you're believing in atmospheric filth, Mm -hmm. which is what they talk about, when they make those turbines, no matter how much they save, if they save anything... The air is very dirty, assuming you believe that. But turbines, very expensive, doesn't work, and it's very intermittent. And it doesn't have the power to do what you want to do. And by the way, kills all your birds and ruins your, I mean, these magnificent landscapes that are just being decimated by wind. Solar doesn't have the power. And by the way, it's dirty to make. It's very tough to make, and it's dirty. And by the way, you have to change them. You have to change those Mm -hmm. panels at the end of 10 years. Everyone says, oh, great, we just, no. As soon as you start getting your money back, which actually takes 30 years. Yeah, you don't. But in 10 years, you have to change the panels. Same thing on the wind. You take a look at those windmills after 10 years, they're beat to hell. And we have sitting, we're sitting on top of liquid gold, and the world doesn't want us to use it. And certainly China doesn't want it. We have something China doesn't have, and they don't want us to use it. But it's real power. And if you look at China, they're opening up a massive coal plant every week week. or more. And it's not like, gee, it's going to stay within the confines. That stuff comes up and it blows over to the United right. States. So we clean it up 
and it costs us a fortune. We can no longer compete with them. That's why I ended the so-called Paris Climate Accord, because it was so one-sided. I know you like that. Oh, yeah. It was so- I like that you canceled it, yes. Well, we were going to spend a trillion dollars over a short period of time, and it was all against us. And, and you know also that it, it Paris Climate Accords, I never understood why they were so passionate about it. It's because that was the beginning of the banking control. Correct. Right, where they are now saying, well, I don't know if you're a brown company, we may not be able to give you a loan. This is all happening, and it's a fundamental transformation at a scale I don't think people yeah. understand. Yeah. It can, when Obama was stopped deep sea drilling right. and pulled all of the, the, the um, uh, drilling out, right. the concern was you don't just make a new one. Those are on 20-year, 30-year right. leases. Absolutely. Are we going to be in three years in trouble if our banks are putting the small gas oil fracking coal people out and fundamentally changing the structure for green energy, yeah. can we recover from that no, quickly? No, because the green energy is not strong enough to fire up those plants. And I'm, saying, though, let's, I'm saying though, let's just pretend <laughs> that you're gonna be president okay. in, in three years. Can we turn this around and get on track quickly. quickly we can yeah we can i mean we have to have optimism and this is more than optimism this is fact we were energy independent 11 months ago totally energy independent and now we're going to opec to beg them for oil I know. we're going to opec saudi arabia russia we're going to russia we're making russia so rich you know when i ended the pipeline in russia Everyone said, oh, I'm so nice to Russia. I got along great with Putin and with President Xi and with all of them. But there was never anybody tough like I was mm -hmm. on that. And with the tariffs on China, we took in billions and billions of dollars and frankly brought a lot of businesses back home because it no longer made sense for them to do things in China. But when they did the pipeline and look at Russia, their primary thing is oil mm -hmm. and the cost. What we're doing is we're making them rich. Mm -hmm. When you see the kind of money that people are paying to OPEC, which includes Russia and Saudi Arabia, these people have never made this kind of money. This all happened over mm -hmm. a short period of time. We would become energy independent quickly. Again. Energy will, again, yeah. we were the, for the first time I, ever. I, I have to tell you, when I first heard that, I didn't think that was going to happen in my lifetime. Yeah. We have talked about that forever. No one in the press talked about the fact that we were energy independent. I remember the first time I heard that we were energy independent. Right. I heard it from you. Right. It's astounding. And in a month, we're back on. Well, they just turned everything off. Sorry. I got it going. So we were bigger than Russia, bigger than Saudi Arabia. In one year, we would have been bigger than both combined. Think of that. We were making a fortune. And it was great for jobs, great for everything. And it was also great for people that drive a car. Right. Because they never had it so good. And right. now, all of a sudden, he just stopped the supply. I mean, you look at what they did. They stopped it. They closed down rigs. Uh, they stopped the leasing of government yeah. lands. Do you think there's any, any way possible that these things that are happening are just miscalculations? This seems so well planned out to destroy us. It's so many things. So many. And it's all self-inflicted. Right. And then you start to say, it must be on purpose. Millions of people allowed to come into our country. 
prisons being emptied from many countries. You know, it used to yeah. be three or four, I'd say, but it's yeah. hundred. They had 121 countries now. Prisons being where people are being dumped into our country. We have 12. I think it's. I think it was 12. It came out. 12 cities that are at their breaking, peak, yeah, right. breaking records for homicides, yeah. all run by Democrats. Breaking points. And many of those people that are causing the crime are coming through our southern border. We had the strongest border in history. Mm. Now we have the weakest border in history. And that includes drugs. We brought drugs down 61% and it was going to get better. And now I hear it's five, six times more than it was at its worst. It's just coming through unimpeded. One of the first things that Joe Biden did was to stop the Keystone uh, pipeline and then say to Russia, you can build your pipeline. That's something that Reagan, forever we've been saying, don't do that. Poland begged him, Ukraine begged him, don't do that. You had- I stopped it. You had stopped it. It was done. Correct. If if you would have done that, people would have said, see there, he's in bed. He's friends with Putin, he loves Putin. It's like crazy. I watched, this is being taped in, uh, what is it, November or December, um, and we'll be airing in January, but I think it was this week, I watched Putin look at Joe Biden. I didn't see respect or fear uh, from him, a fear of the United States or respect for the United States. True. Um, it, it, do, you know Putin. You know how he thinks. You know how to deal with him. Is he going to move into Ukraine, do you think? Well, it's looking like that. Uh, You know, when Biden told him about what he was talking about sanctions, when Biden says sanctions, Putin's saying sanctions, if they're only going to sanction, then there's no sanction that's going to stop me from taking over a country. And by the way, it's a massive piece of land in an unbelievable location. Right. You know that. But he didn't say there could be very serious consequence. A sanction is not a serious consequence, no matter how strong it is. Not when it comes to taking over a country. And there was no fear. Look, with China, there wasn't, you didn't have planes flying over Taiwan. And I told President Xi, can't do that. You can't do that. We had a lot of great conversations right here at Mm Mar-a-Lago when he was here. We talked for hours and hours. We got to know each other very well. I said, you can't do Taiwan. And now all of a sudden, as soon as I leave, they start flying over many bombers. Tell me the, tell me the... Tell me what happens to us. I mean, they always accused you of trying to dismantle NATO. NATO is falling apart and will mean nothing if we don't help Ukraine. And neither will any of our our treaties if they move into Taiwan and we do nothing. What does the world look like with Russia in Ukraine and China in Taiwan? Well, if that happens, but with NATO is very interesting. I had my first meeting, 28 countries, including us. And I looked at the charts and I said, wait a minute, these people aren't paying. (laughs) They're delinquent. Okay. You know the word, a real estate term, they're delinquent. (laughs) They're not paying. And I said at the first meeting, you're not paying. And then I had a second meeting a number of months later. I said, you have to pay. And somebody said, does that mean you won't protect us from Russia if we don't pay? I said, that's right. You have to pay. And you know what happened? $400 billion came in, $400 billion. I said, why would we protect you if we're not here to 
to protect Europe. And by the way, you take advantage of us on trade. That was the other thing I was doing. They're almost as bad as China on trade, and nobody understands that. Nobody knows it. What they've done with, with so many different companies, as an example, we can sell basically almost no farm product in. And I said, I said to Angela Merkel, how many Chevrolets do you have in the middle of Berlin? Mm. She said, why none? I said, that's right. And we have millions of Mercedes Benz and all of BMW, all of these car companies are floating it in. I said, all of that's changing. Then we got hit with COVID. Then I rebuilt it again. We rebuilt it a second time. They thought it was going to take anywhere from five to 12 years. By the time this airs, Joe Biden will have more people that died in this one year than under your watch. And he was supposed to fix it. And he has the vaccines. He didn't fix anything. And actually, he scared people from taking the vaccine, which is I agree. You look at the chart. Boom, it happened. You know, when I was there, we, we came up with it and everybody wanted it. When I left, people really didn't want it. And then they do the mandates, which is terrible. Shouldn't do it. Would it you ever bad. do anything no, like that? I, I, and they shouldn't have done it either. They scared everybody. And they hurt the economy very badly. You know, the mandates are one of the reasons you can't get anybody to work for you. The mandates have been a disaster. But I would like them to take the vaccine, but they have to do it if they want right. it. And you know what? There's plenty of people that would take it. I won't ask whether or not you've had it, but I, I had COVID. I had COVID quite badly. Okay. And they don't give credit for that. Right. If you have COVID, supposedly it's as good. Yeah. Supposedly right. it's as good. Why wouldn't you get credit for that? They don't give credit for mm-hmm. that. You need to get the vaccination. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's ridiculous. But they don't trust the Biden administration. And that's why they're not doing it. With all of that being said, if we didn't come, I believe this would have been a 1917 catastrophe, you know, where perhaps yeah. oh, yeah. 100 million people died. Right. But all over the world, we saved 10 million people, 20 million. We may have saved 100 million. It was spreading like wildfire. But we have to keep our freedoms also. And they didn't do that. You, um, I think when, when this was coming out of China, it was perfectly reasonable to shut everything down. Yeah. Because we didn't know. They were welding people into their homes in China. We had no idea, and they weren't being open. And by the way, they welded them in, and they never opened them. That was the end of them. Fauci, I wanted to give give everybody the benefit of the doubt in those early days. We have done a ton of research. I did one of the biggest chalkboards I think I've ever done. Right. They were using federal government money to do... um, uh, Wuhan. Yeah, in Wuhan. I stopped it. Right. I was the one that stopped well, it. Well, you did, but I don't think Fauci uh, cared about that. Fauci's no. now claiming he's science. Did you ever, did you ever, would he still be working for you today? No, not now, but, but he's a great promoter. He's not a great doctor, but he's a great promoter. <laughs> but you have to understand everything he wanted, I didn't do. As an example, he wanted to keep it open to China. He ultimately was wrong about that and admitted it and admitted that I saved tens of thousands of lives. He wanted to keep it open. I saw what was happening in Italy and France mm-hmm. and Spain, mm-hmm. and I closed it to Europe very early. You know, in China, it was January I closed it, and in Europe, it was shortly thereafter. We saved thousands and thousands of lives. He wanted to do that. And then his big one of them all is the masks are useless. They don't mean anything. And then all of a sudden, he wants you to wear 10 masks. You know, wear as many as you can, put them right. all over, cover your right. ears, do everything. So 
I didn't really do much of what he said. And he wasn't a big factor for me, in a sense, because of that. I think he thinks the presidency works for him now. Well, he's totally controlling Biden. Yeah. yeah. Now I'm saying uh, he they are doing what he wants to do now. But I didn't do that. Remember, his big thing was keep it open to China. I said, wait a minute, you have people. Now, since then, we've learned so much about this disease. Right. And you know, when they locked down a city like New York, it was so bad. And yet it was totally locked down. It was locked down and they were in worse shape than Texas and Florida mm-hmm. and South Dakota and so many other places. They were doing worse. People that had no contact with other people were catching COVID right. or the China virus, as I call it, because it's a much more accurate term. And you think of it, Len, they have no access to anything and they were catching it. How did it happen? Who knows? But these lockdowns didn't work and they were destroying the kids. They were destroying children have been set back so badly, not having gone to schools so badly. I had I have a teenage son and I've talked about this rarely, but because of the lockdown, being at school in my family, we had a suicide attempt. attempted suicide. You know, I didn't know that. And I've only talked about it once. The mental health of our kids is on the edge. And no one was no one's willing to talk about that consequence. And by the way, children, you talk about, but people look at the suicide rates, look at the depression, look at all of the other things. People have been destroyed with these lockdowns. It's so horrible the way they've handled it. And we understand the disease now. We understand it. We understood it quite a while ago. You look at Cuomo, where he was doing the grandstanding all over the place. He was a disaster. You know, I sent a hospital ship to New York, and I I built a hospital, 2,800 beds in the Javits Center, convention Mm -hmm. center, and they didn't use it. They sent the people that were infected back into the nursing Nursing homes. I said, why aren't you using... These things, the captain, an admiral called, he said, they're not using the ship. And we actually had a design for COVID, which is, you know, different mm-hmm, in terms mm-hmm. of ventilation and everything else. Did an incredible job. We had a two-week turnaround. It was incredible, the job they did. And we kept saying, where are the people? And yet they're going back into nursing homes and people are dying. It was incredible. We did a great job. Some of these governors did a horrible job. Financing.net. Let me pivot to um, schools. What is fascinating to me, before President Biden even walked into the Oval Office, he had just taken the oath and his staff um, began executing an executive order. Yeah. The f- one of the first one, if not the first one, was to pull the 1776 commission report. Which I set up. Which you set up. It was completely reasonable. I've read it. It is accurate history. And if you look at that, I thought at the time, why would that be your first priority? We now know. And we we have school boards uh, running things into Marxist territory pitting our kids against each other and the FBI investigating parents. A, is it time to get rid of the Department of Education and give the schools back to the states and to the parents? 
So I wanted to do that. We would have done that, or we would have done a very big forum of it. You have people in Washington, D.C. that don't even care about the kids. They're bureaucrats. They're working in right. Washington. And they're telling people in Iowa and they're telling people in Idaho and in other places, faraway places, where every place is different. They're telling them exactly what they're going to study. You don't need that. There should be a little coordination, like sure. you have to learn English. <laughs> yeah. You have to have some basic math. But what they were doing was terrible. And then what happened is it started getting into the whole cancel culture thing and all of the different things that you've been reading about, which is totally true. What they were doing, it's totally They're true. You know, they tried it. to they tried to say yeah. with the Yunkin race, which was very mm -hmm. good, which we helped them a lot. Mm -hmm. It would have been a big I'll tell you what, that would have been a terrible result yes. if we yes. didn't. But that was a good race. And people really saw what was happening with the schools. So. I think it's a great thing to get get the heck out of Washington. You know, some of these states do a great, a terrific job. They can't move because of the federal government. They can't do what they want to do. And look at where we stand internationally. We spend three times more for education per student than any other country in the world. And we're in 38th place. It's terrible. So you give it back to the states where the states and some of these states will do a fantastic job. Not all of them. Mm -hmm. You have some mm -hmm. that are badly run themselves. They're not going to mm -hmm. do so well. But you'll have states that are doing a phenomenal job. They'll be they'll be doing a job like Norway, like Sweden. I hate to say this, like China. You know, China has great education. They do a fantastic job. They're rated number three. And, and for a small fraction of the money that we right. spend per student, because that's right. the only way you can judge it. Right. We spend three times more than any other country. Take the second country. We spend three times more. And some of these kids come out of school. They can't read or write. It's really bad. So uh, the problem here is, and you exposed this, and even I was uncomfortable when you said the press is the enemy of the people. You were right. Um, I knew the deep state was a thing, this bureaucracy that just doesn't answer to anybody. Um, but I didn't realize how bad it was until you started to expose it. I just made and a you list. You exposed it also. I remember you long before I got this involved. I used to get great press. Remember, before oh, I, I ran for politics, I guess that's how loved. I got elected. Yeah. I got... I was the, the boy wonder. I was getting great press. I mean, historically, I yeah, would yeah, get yeah, pretty yeah. good press. Long before that, you were hitting the press pretty hard. They were also hitting you pretty hard, yeah. and you realized it was unfair. Right. No, I said they're the enemy of the people. I came up with the fake news. I know. They're the, one of the best of all names. They're fake news. But now I realize it's not strong enough. They're really the corrupt news. They're very corrupt. As I look at the deep state, let's just pretend you're going to, you're going to run again. Okay. Um, and you're president. Two terms. You'll have four years. As I look at it, you have to pretty much clean house right. at Justice, the FBI, CIA, NSC, NIH, the State Department, Treasury, HHS, Department of Ed Education, and the Department of Ed uh, Energy. Their roots are deep in those. Deep. Many, many years. Can you, in four years... I know you're good at this. You've yeah. had a show. You're fired. No, Can you fire and replace all of those things in four years? You pretty much have to. Look, when I got elected, 
I was only in Washington, D.C. 17 times, they say. I mean, I think it's about that right, but they did say. Of the 17, I never stayed overnight. And many of those, those times were building a hotel, mm-hmm. which is a beautiful hotel, a great hotel, at the old post office, right, on Pennsylvania Avenue. So I was never here. I never was into the world of the Washington, D.C. All of a sudden, I'm president. And I rely on people. We had great people. We had some great people, and we had some bad choices, too. The answer is yes, we have to do that. And it can be absolutely done. But I realized as time went by, I re- I, and I got to know, I went from knowing nobody to knowing just about everybody. Mm-hmm. I know incredible people. And we did. Look, we rebuilt the military. We did so many different I things know. that nobody, including the vaccines, but we did so many things that nobody thought possible. You know, one right to try where the FDA is very slow with drugs. We got to cut in half. But still, if somebody's dying terminally ill and we have something that's great, we now are able to give it to them because and it's working miracles. What's happening to people, it's incredible saving lives. But we did so many things. But now I know what's happening. I know so many people that are so great that are longing to come in with the same attitude that you have of changing it. Now, for 30 years whether it's Bush mm-hmm. and some of the Republicans are honestly, some mm-hmm. of these rhino Republicans are worse than Mitch McConnell. They're worse. Mitch McConnell is a disaster. He's a total disaster. He gave up the debt ceiling for nothing. He just gave them the debt ceiling. For, he is a total disaster, Mitch. But when you take a look, the Republicans, we've had Bush, Clinton, Obama. And at that time, many, many years of of mm-hmm. people being put into place. Mm-hmm. They've been there for 30 years, 35 years. Has to be cleaned out. Has to be cleaned out. Book that you guys are putting out, the coffee table right. book. A, I hope it has focused somewhat on her work that she did. Yes. Uh, and B, is... Did you do a coffee table picture book because there's another uh, four years that you're going to have to write to put it into a real biography of your presidential years? So we did a book which has been selling like hotcakes, 150,000 in the first two weeks. And and normally a book like that won't sell to the same extent, you know, because they're waiting for the other book where I talk about a lot of stories. Yeah. But I write about certain photos. I did it really for a different reason. It's so sad, our country right now. I don't think we've ever been lower. And despite all of the witch hunts and the phony Russia, Russia, Russia impeachments, it was a beautiful time. We had the greatest economy in history. We then had the China virus come in, and then I rebuilt the economy. I really rebuilt it twice, the second time harder than the first. But we had the greatest economy, the greatest everything. It was a glamour pit. It was a beautiful period. And now I see what's happening with energy, with inflation, with the military, with these clowns. Uh, And I said, you know what, let's put out a book talking about how beautiful it was, because we're going to make it that way again. And it's people like you that really, you have done such an incredible job. You give people hope. It's so important because there are not a lot of people that understand that word hope, but you give people hope and you have for a long time. And I really commend you on it. Thank you, Mr. President. I hope we get a chance to talk again, and I sincerely hope that you are running again. Oh, thank you very much. four years. Thank you, sir. Thank you. 
So let me, um, uh, first of all, that was a fantastic interview. Glenn Beck, uh, has, uh, come back to his roots of where he began and where he is today, full circle. Uh, and that is, uh, because he humbled himself. He was forced to be humbled and now, uh, he's put himself, um, to the selfless, uh, train, which is great. I like this Glenn Beck, this version of Glenn Beck. I like reminds me of the very earlier version of him. Fantastic interview, by the way. One thing that President Trump, we can all agree, did was shine the light on things. The more they attacked him, they mo the more they made evident what the problems are. <clears throat> and I think this is probably why I think that even though, how do I put it? I believe that when someone runs for office, it's for one reason and one reason only, and that is to better their community, their, their city, their county, their state, their nation. And the more I've been mulling the idea around of running, the more I think it's important that I do. Uh, not because I want, I, I am very uncomfortable around people. Uh, I just wanted to say, <laughs> I think um, uh, in Florida, we had a fantastic dinner with tons of people and the most proud moment that I had there for them, I was so proud of each and every one of them is because they are running. They're running for office in their counties and in their cities. I spoke to them and let's say there were a hundred people, 98 of them were running. And that I was so proud to be around them. Like I was like, it was an honor just being around them because they were doing so much within their state and organizing so well. Uh, it kind of, um, I was, I was so humbled to just be around them, but I can also say that I was extremely overwhelmed. Those that know me well know that I don't like going out places because people keep talking to me or try to kiss me. No, that's a joke. I, that only happened once, but I guess they, they can imagine like, well, you look like cleaned up. But, um, <clears throat> having said that, I, um, I was so incredibly humbled to be around them. And after mulling with the idea, I was thinking, could you imagine if I ran? One, I would definitely run to hopefully win, right? But two, I would run so that way people can talk about the things they don't want to. Uh, I think that would be the way you win because you have them start the conversation. Uh, you know, what if they talked about XYZ topic? Then it would expose a $181 million fraud against uh, a group of citizens. If they talk about election fraud and mock me for actually being the only Dominion lawsuit right now in the courts, um, we can have a chat about that. You know, what if they ask me questions like, They'll ask me some questions for sure. Like you've made, you know, this statement before. And I'm thinking, I know one question that I'll definitely be asked. I'll definitely have visual aids like Sheriff Polk in Florida that, you know, Sheriff Polk 
does really well with his visual aids. And I think that's something that I'll adopt to taking inspiration, but I'm actually thinking of it because, you know, if I could do it, knowing the crucifixion that will happen, um, anyone can, and that's what's, um, and that's, what's incredible. So I am actually, um, seriously thinking about it because I think it will bring attention to what we need to pay attention to in the right way. And um, I'll just keep praying on it because, you know, there's a, there's a few things uh, that, you know, we, we see is that a lot of people uh, feel that um, they're either not feeling a lot of pleasure or anything. And that's because humility and modesty um, is not honored anymore. And it's very confusing to people that understand good and evil. They do not blend things. And the state of our society right now is to blur lines of facts uh, the vaccines, for example, you know, hey, I see. what the hell is going on with my computer? Hold on guys. Why is Yuri on? Why is, oh my gosh, I have like a million things I've been trying to turn off. I'm sorry. My browser went crazy because my, my cat will not leave me alone. I'm so sorry, guys. My cat is walking all over the keyboard. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's like flipping through YouTube. No, he hasn't seen me for a week. It wasn't, it was hacked by my cat. Um, You can hear him. (laughs) He's so loud. All right. (laughs) He scared me because he was walking all over it. So at the state of our nation right now is not at a point that we need cookie cutter politicians. We don't need those that have the million dollar smiles, uh, that have, you know, and all of them are lawyers. We don't need people with the massive portfolios. Uh, we don't need people who listen to, uh, corporations. We need people that can actually conduct action. And action is something that we don't see a lot of. Those that actually take action are ridiculed, are silenced, and a lot of people are terrified to run for office only because they're like, well, you know, uh, you know, maybe I might be me too. I was kind of a, an ass in college or, you know, oh, you know, when I was 16, I, you know, was stealing cars. I was this. Listen, nobody... This is the problem with society and in people. They focus way too much on the past to see uh, how we can build the future. You can only connect dots backwards. And once you connect dots backwards, you can see what your future is. This is the only reason anyone would look into the past and into history is to be able to find a picture of the future. Just because you did that once when you were 16 or, you know, whatever, or, you know, you were me too. I'd probably get me too by like everything, male, female, questionable, trans, you name it, you know, own it. 
own your your shadow self and no one can use it against you. It's 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 really important that people understand that. Own it. Don't let anyone use your, you know, your uh, insecurities and uh, your, because I spoke to a lot of people that are running and they were very insecure. They were worried, well, what if they say, uh, you know, this is, what if they mock me? What if they're like, oh, you used to date, you know, girls and now you date guys and now you're back to girls, you know, all you have to answer with it's 2022. Are you discriminating against me for my sexual choices? You know, you can own that. You don't need to sit in the dark and say, what if, what if? And then we let these cookie cutter with fantastic veneers. Okay. Most of them, like I was watching the people that are running for governor. I like Joe. Um, I like Joe, but like Jim Renacci, it's like he's paid a fortune for his teeth, right? Uh, he's like a Colgate smile, smiles to your face and does what he wants on the side. You know, this is, this is reality. This is everywhere across the nation. And so people don't be upset for who you were yesterday. Focus on the future because this is exactly why we're fighting. This is why there's lawsuits. This is why people are taking a run at this. You're starting to become active citizens as intended a thousand years ago. It's <laughs> you're supposed to be an active citizen and no one, no one should, um, no one should be ashamed of anything. And I would love to see all of you run those that are the single moms or the mom that have, you know, six baby daddies, you know, no one cares. It's what you do for your community now that matters. And this is why we need the people. And that's how we take it back. Hence, you know, unfortunately, um, some, a lot of people are mulling the decision. Do they want their family out there? Do they want to, um, you know, be dragged through the mud? And that's what, it is. Own it. Nobody cares. I mean, I'm possibly going to run knowing that they'll annihilate me. They'll start talking cracking. They'll call me QAnon. Obviously, they'll realize very soon that, oh, you know, I use a lot of Q a lot because Will Somner from the Daily Beast foams at the mouth. And I find it funny. So then the headlines would read, candidate for governor is a troll and likes to troll people. And it's like, who doesn't? But um, <clears throat> I could see the headlines now. QAnon conspiracy theorist. Yeah, but the thing is, I never did any decodes and digital red string. You just get fired up because I troll you with cues. You know, they're going to ask me questions that are going to, well, I can clap back. See, I'm going to be one of those politicians that doesn't need notes. <laughs> don't need notes. Probably some of those going to be like, look, man, don't push me. I'll just quit. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, you know, if I'm willing to do it and there is, uh, you know, as a person, I don't want to have to go through all of that again. But um, if I'm going to do it, you can. I'm just saying, if I 
can do it, you can. And, um, you know, for instance, I may be inspired by that Attorney General of Pennsylvania, uh, you know, when walking in. I think one of my biggest things that I'm going to do is take Wexner's, Wexner's name off of the hospitals. Uh, that's disgusting to have a pedo's name everywhere. That's no. And um, not recognize OSHA as a state. I think employers can make their own choices and they are responsible if there are any health, health hazards. I can implement that. See, one thing that I was thinking about uh, when looking at some letters that I received at the get-together in Florida and those running were the concerns that they had if they could do a good job. And obviously running for school board, your priorities would be the budgets and students and the infrastructure and the health insurance for the teachers, dental insurance, you know, all that stuff. Um, <clears throat> now, like for governor, for example, governor is kind of like the president of the state. They command the National Guard. They command the whole state's budget. They can write executive orders. And they are pretty much the state president. And that's a really important position, if you think about it. And for some reason, if you look across our nation, uh, an average person has never governed their state that they understand and know. And so it's a big responsibility, just like every single other position out there. And there's no qualifications. If you guys look, I mean, someone was like, oh, I want to run for Congress in, you know, in Northern Florida, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, they were like, but I don't know if I can do it, the qualifications. And I was like, the qualifications of being a resident and an adult. I think you have common sense enough to know. Like, okay, let's let's put it this way, and I'll speak from my perspective. Because when I read that letter, I thought, hmm, I should respond to her and tell her that, you know, you, the only qualifications is good intentions for your community. Why? Let's say for example, one thing that I would do as governor is actually uh, increase the um, police officers' wages, but instead of actually hiring and having like a cycle of officers that just go to, you know, officer training camp for like a few months and then they go out on the street, I would um, target uh, uh, younger individuals from different communities. Like, for example, East Cleveland is overrun by crime, right? Well, how many students are in juvenile jail that they just fell into the road, wrong crowds and have potential? Why can't you give them an education to train in criminology and then become a police officer and have educated police officers that don't do things? I'm just, I'm just saying, these are just ideas, right? All of us have ideas for communities that can actually rectify something that's wrong. In your school board, you might find that, you know, getting this insurance company from XYZ is more expensive, right? These are simple ideas and you're not going to make decisions on your own. You're going to hire, uh, you know, an accountant. Actually, you'll have a very big, large one and you can simply tell them, explain it to me like I'm a four-year-old because I am not an accountant.
And it's very simple for them to do their job. They're supposed to explain it to you. This is how positions are done. The president of the United States, one of the biggest jobs, even with President Trump, who's commanded many companies in his lifetime and was able to work across borders, um, you know, hire people, fire people, project projects. Uh, but, you know, he, he would be able to sit down and do his PL reports himself, I'm pretty sure. He would be qualified to run the United States as such as a business, but he didn't know anything about, you know, the diplomatic relations. He wasn't open and inside the intelligence community. He learned all that, right? Compared to Biden, who apparently doesn't have any businesses. He put them all in Hunter Biden's name in order for Hunter to take the hit. And he, you know, Hunter would just siphon off money. Um, he didn't run any businesses. He didn't do cross-border commerce, right? Yet, apparently, he's running the nation. How? Well, with other people, people that are specialists. So for those of you out there that are thinking, I'm going to go to Congress, I don't know what I'm doing, it's at that point that you recoup, you know, you, you, you collect yourself, find someone that you can put as your chief of staff in Congress or the Senate and have them be your educated, you know, ride or die person and have them guide you in the places that you cannot guide. That is how it, it works. Most of the work that is done in positions like Congress, Senate, governorship, mayorship are done by others. The mayor is the executive. The governor is the executive to make the decision. The congressperson is the executive. The senator is the executive to make decisions based on collective work. So no matter how impossible it may seem or how great of a task it is, you have to remember that President Trump took one of the biggest tasks where he had to command not only his nation, but other nations, our armies that were based overseas or in space, as they like to call it, too. Uh, you know, he commanded all of that in threats and nuclear threats and extraordinary threats and a pandemic. And he still got it done. So it's important that you understand that whatever position you run from, you will run for, you will get it done. If your heart's in the right place that you want to get things done. It's, it's very important or else you'll have people like Ted Cruz take seats. See, now all of you are seeing what I've been saying, you know, Ted Cruz looks like he's itchy in a human suit. Here's a little segment of what he had to say about January 6th. Phrase things yesterday. It, it was sloppy and, and it was frankly dumb. As a result of my sloppy phrasing, it's caused a lot of people to misunderstand what I meant. Let me tell you what, what I meant to say. What I was referring to are, are the limited number of people who engaged in violent attacks against police officers. That's who I was talking about. And the reason the phrasing was sloppy is I have talked dozens, if not hundreds of times. I've drawn a distinction. I wasn't saying that the thousands of peaceful protesters supporting Donald Trump are somehow terrorists. John Burnett, does that change anything? I mean, you basically you're, you're kind of excusing Look. him. You're, you're like, OK, with what Mr. Cruz has said. Look, let's be clear. We are not painting a broad, painting with a broad brush. Right. We are talking about people that reached the Capitol. We are talking about those small amounts of people, mm -hmm. not all conservatives, 
and not everyone that was there in the Capitol. Right. And we're also not separating that small population from their actions and why they were there for political purposes. So okay. I understand what, 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 what the senator said initially. I understand why he went on Tucker to, to, to explain himself. And like Cheryl said, I am not throwing out. Again, why do we care what Cruz says? Think about it this way. Cruz is a senator from Texas, Texans. He should give a shit about what the Texans say because Senator Cruz is not my senator, right? But if you don't run, you get more Senator Cruz's, you get your Schumer's, you get your Nadler's, right? You get your Pelosi's. When you run, it's you and you take that position and you take it, you pull it by the hair <laughs> and you're like, you're mine now, right? And you do it because you want to fix your community. That's important. I mean, you guys already know about, what do they call it? The insurrection. You mean the planned federal coup where we had federal employees saying, there will be people that want to get into the Capitol. We will let them. Those were their exact words. And we knew this before the election. And they said that they're going to be doing all of this chaos between November when the election happens up until inauguration day. This is what they said. But I digress, right? So we already knew that the feds were going to complete their coup. Everybody knew it. Or wait, it was Cernovich and little bitches like that that were telling people not to listen when we have the goods. Therefore, it was meant to be that you see exactly how important it is to run, right? It is very important to run for your positions. Very important. Now, why is it important? Because then you get to elect someone like, you know, Rand Paul, right? who puts people in very difficult positions because he is a doctor. And when, you know, Frouchy, Frouchy, um wants to lie, he gets caught. Are you familiar with an Israeli study that had uh, 2.5 million patients and found that the vaccinated group was actually seven times more likely to get infected with COVID than the people who had gotten COVID naturally. Senator, I'd have to get back to you on that one. I'm not familiar with that study. Well, you think you might want to be if you're going to travel the country insulting the uh, millions of Americans, including NBA star Jonathan Isaac, who have had COVID recovered, look at a study with 2.5 million people and say, well, you know what? It looks like my immunity is as good as a vaccine or not in a free country, maybe I ought to be able to make that decision. Instead, you've chosen to travel the country calling people like Jonathan Isaac and others, myself included, flat earthers. We find that very insulting, goes against the science. Are you a doctor or a medical doctor? I've worked uh, over 30 no. years on health so policy. You're, you're not a medical doctor. Do you have a science degree? And yet you travel the country calling people flat earthers who have had COVID, looked at studies of millions of people, and made their own personal decision that their immunity they naturally acquired is sufficient. But you presume somehow to tell over 100 million Americans who have survived COVID that we have no right to determine our own medical care. You alone are on high and you've made these decisions, a lawyer with no scientific background, no medical degree. This is an arrogance coupled with an authoritarianism that is unseemly and un-American. You, sir, are the one ignoring the science. The vast preponderance of scientific studies, dozens and dozens, show robust, long-lasting immunity after COVID infection. 
Even the CDC does not recommend measles vaccine if you have measles immunity. The same was true for smallpox. But you ignore history and science to shame the flat earthers, as you call them. You should be ashamed of yourself and apologize to the American people for being dishonest about naturally acquired immunity. You want more people to choose vaccination? So do I. You want to lessen vaccine hesitancy? So do I. You want to have that happen? Quit lying to people about naturally acquired immunity. Quit lording it over people, acting as if these people are deplorable and unwashed. Try persuasion instead of government cudgels. Try humility instead of arrogance. Try freedom instead of coercion. But most of all, try understanding that there's no more basic medical right than deciding what we inject into our bodies. Today, after hearing that millions of people in a study prove, show without a doubt that there's a great deal of immunity from getting it naturally, do you want to apologize to the 100 million Americans who suffered through COVID, survived, have immunity, and yet you want to hold them down and vaccinate them? Do you want to apologize for calling those people flat earthers? Senator, I appreciate your question and appreciate that everyone has their opinion. Uh, we follow the facts and the science at HHS. We use the expertise of the medical professionals, the scientists at uh, HHS to make decisions. Uh, it's a team effort, and we rely on what is on the ground showing us results. Except for the dozens and dozens of studies. In fact, most, if not all, of the studies show robust immunity from getting the disease naturally. The CDC says if you've had measles and have immunity, you don't have to be vaccinated. The same was true of smallpox. You're selectively doing this because you want us to submit to your will. You have no scientific background, no scientific degrees, and yet you aren't really concerned about 100 million Americans who had the disease. You just want to tell us, do as you're told. That's what you're telling us. You want to mandate this on all of us. You're going to tell us if I have 100 employees, you're going to put me out of business with a $700,000 fine if I don't obey what you think is a science. Don't you understand that it's presumptuous for you to be in charge of all the science? Have you ever heard of a second opinion? I can't go to my doctor and ask my doctor's opinion. I mean, this is, is, is incredibly arrogant combined with this author authoritarian nature that you think, well, we'll just tell all of America to do what I say and they better or we'll find them or put them in jail or not let them go to school or not let them travel. The science is against you on this. The science is clear. Naturally acquired immunity is as good as a vaccine the Israel study actually showing it better. This isn't an argument against the vaccine, but it's an argument for letting people make a decision who already have immunity. You're not willing to consider natural immunity? Senator, our team has reviewed every study that's out there on COVID, whether it's from Israel, from the U.S., or wherever else. They have used the facts that have been provided through the uh, rigorous research that's been done to reach a conclusion, 660-odd thousand Americans and more have died because of COVID. We're trying to do everything we can to save as many as possible. We're using the facts. We're following the science and following the law. Nobody's arguing the severity of this, but you are completely ignoring the science on natural immunity. So is Fauci. So is the whole group. You're just ignoring it because you want submission. You want everybody just to submit to your will, do as you're told, despite the evidence, the large body of scientific evidence that says naturally acquired immunity does work is an important part of how we're all going to recover from this. So is the vaccine. But when you add them together, we're at a much different place than if you ignore them. A hundred million Americans by conservative CDC estimates have had the disease. 200 million or more now have been vaccinated. It's a good thing. 
combined together, it's how the disease is. Nobody wants to get the disease. We're not advising anybody to get the disease. But if you're unlucky enough to get it, think of the nurses and doctors and orderlies who all bravely took care of COVID patients. There was no vaccine for a year and a half. They took care of people, risked their lives. They got it, survived. And now people like you are arrogant enough to say, you can no longer work in the hospital because you've already had the disease. We're going to force you to take a vaccine that the science does not prove is better than naturally acquired. That's an arrogance that should be chastened. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Senator Cruz. We talked just a minute ago about the difference between law and politics. We heard some impassioned political speeches, but also a question that just was asked by my friend from New Jersey. Is there anything in this memo? to tell a parent that they're being targeted for harassment and intimidation. I would note, cited 20 instances, 15 of which were nonviolent. The letter from the school board described them as domestic terrorism. Within days, the Department of Justice snapped to the commands of the special interest and issued a memo, a directive to the Department of Justice and a directive to the FBI. This is again where law matters. The opening sentence describes a disturbing spike in harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence. Now, you spent a long time as a judge when you have three things listed. Am I correct that anyone interpreting that, reading it, would conclude that harassment and intimidation are something different than threats of violence, given that you listed each of the three out separately? Is that consistent with the canons of construction? The memorandum addressed to professional prosecutors? I asked you a question, not who it was addressed to. Senator, at least let him respond. No, not when he answers a non sequitur. If he, he may wants to respond. Answer the, okay, you're taking my time now. This is not coming out of my time. Listen, when I ask a question. We've given you more time the, than any other senator. Mr. Chairman. Now listen, when I ask all I'm asking question, is allow him to respond. Mr. Chairman, when I ask a question, he can answer the question, but he's proceeding to ask a total non sequitur. I asked about the canons of construction on the board. Please uh, let him respond. I'll ask the question again. Uh, the opening line of the memo specifies harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence. Is it correct under the ordinary canons of construction that a legal reader would understand that harassment and intimidation mean something different from threats of violence? Is that correct? A legal reader would know Virginia versus Black, the Supreme Court definition of intimidation, and a legal reader would know 18 U.S.C. 2261A, the definition of harassment. And, and what a parent? This was not addressed to parents. But you know, parents read it. You're the oh. Attorney General of the United States. You said you can't think of anything harassing. You directed the G-Man, the FBI, to go after parents. All right, let's move on to a different topic. We've sadly seen that you are willing to use the enforcement power of the Department of Justice to target those who have political views different than you, even if it's a mom at a PTA meeting. Let's, let's try the other side. Are you willing to enforce the law fairly against people who are political allies of the president? At a Senate hearing in May, Dr. Fauci said, quote, the NIH has not ever and does not now fund gain of function research in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That was under oath, under testimony. On October 20th, the NIH principal deputy director to do so. I'm going to say again, the memorandum that I issued is not partisan in any way. It has nothing to do with what I agree with or I don't agree with. I don't care whether the threats of violence come from the left or the right. Could you answer now, the question I asked? The second question, we don't comment on criminal investigations or other investigations. If, uh, well, well, amazingly, 
when it's the political enemies of the administration, you comment loudly in a memo. Let me ask one other question. Not asking, uh, the President asking. Biden recently said in a national town hall that police officers who declined to get vaccinated should be fired. Do you agree with President Biden on that? I, I think all police officers, look, I, I stood on the stage at the, uh, uh, at the um, mall um, where the 700 and some police officers died this year were commemorated. Let me, let me try again. Do you agree with the president? It's a yes or no. You've asked questions as a judge. You know how to get a yes or no. Do you agree with the president? Yes or no? A large percentage of the law officers who died this year died from COVID-19. Do you agree with President Biden that police officers who declined to get vaccinated should be fired? Yes if, or no? And if they had been vaccinated, they wouldn't have died. So is that a yes? You do agree with the president? Police officer. In Chicago, a third of the police officers did not file their vaccination status. Do you think Chicago should fire fire a third of its police officers when murder rates and crime rates are skyrocketing? This is a determination that the city of Chicago will have to make. So do you agree with the president? The president said yes. Do you agree with him? You are the chief law enforcement officer of the United States. Do you agree with Joe Biden saying fire police officers despite skyrocketing crime rates? That is a question that is a one of state law there and will have to be decided hmm. by the state. You have no view on whether we should Senator. fire cops? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. See, these are really fascinating um I would say questions. Now, I wanted to quickly skim through a few of these questions that had um, gone through yesterday in the man today. Sorry, in the uh, vaccine mandate for healthcare workers. It's for healthcare workers that I have, and um, it's um, quite fascinating. Let's start with, I, first of all, I wanted you guys to listen to Oset arguing on behalf of Missouri. <laughs> Supreme Court page has ads. Can you believe that? Here we go. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. In early 2020, while millions stayed at home, millions of healthcare workers heroically stayed at, their, at work. These same workers are now forced to tune between losing their jobs and complying with the government's vaccine mandate. The Secretary cla Secretary's claim of authority to impose this mandate is expansive, unprecedented, and unlawful for two principal reasons. First, the Secretary believes a series of vague catch-all provisions scattered throughout the Social Security Act authorize the sweeping mandate, but the relevant text, structure, and context say otherwise. For example, the Secretary ignores eight provisions that precede the catch-all provision he primarily invokes, all of which are materially unlike a permanent medical procedure that cannot be undone after a shift is over. Exceedingly clear language is required here because the mandate regulates matters that have traditionally been within the province of the states. Second, the rule is arbitrary and capricious under the APA. Secretary impermissibly extrapolated evidence for one category of facilities to justify regulating all 15 and failed to adequately explain his sudden shift from encouraging vaccination to mandating it. But more fundamentally, the secretary overlooked the critical perspective of rural healthcare facilities in the states and the devastating consequences the mandate will have on rural Americans' access to healthcare. Categorically excluding an entire class from employment will mean that patients in rural Nebraska will have to seek primary and emergency care two to three hours away and cannot undergo surgery. 
This represents vast stretches of this country where healthcare is not provided by massive institutional providers with tens of thousands of employees, but by smaller healthcare facilities run by local communities. While a 1% loss of staff may be insignificant to the former, it is fatal to the latter. Without the injunction, rural America will face an imminent crisis. The government's application should be denied, and I welcome the court's questions. Uh, Council, uh, would you? So first questions and the discussions that they're going to have uh, pertaining to Missouri uh, are key here. I need you to listen to each of them, even the ones that are sounding like things that you don't want to hear. Discuss the um, uh, preemption issue uh, just briefly. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, this regulation, the Secretary says in this regulation that it is intended to preempt arguably any inconsistent state laws with respect to vaccination requirements. And for example, in this case, the most direct example I can point to, Your Honor, is at 20-7-134 of the Arkansas Code that prohibits as a condition of employment uh, any sort of vaccination requirement. But that's somewhat ironic since he, uh, the... Uh, the government uh, relies on, on those uh, other vaccinations uh, to argue for this vaccination. But are all of the party states uh, in the same position with respect to preemption? Uh, Your Honor, uh, certainly uh, the district court in this case, at the very least, cited that Arkansas, Wyoming, and Missouri are similarly situated with that respect. And certainly there are other states in our in the Missouri-led coalition that also have laws that are going to be preempted by this regulation. Uh, the key point here, Your Honor, just like in Mass VPA, is so long as one of us has one of these laws that would affect uh, our duly enacted legislation through an unlawful mandate, uh, we are, it, is, it does present an issue on preemption. Now, that's independent, obviously, from other interests that the states have in this case, which is the states are the administrator. It's our providers with respect to Medicaid, with Medicare. We're being asked to facilitate this program for the federal government. We have compliance costs. We have surveyors have to go out and enforce this rule. Uh, all of that uh, are, are the state's interest, Your Honor. So he said the, the Missouri State Coalition keyword, and he also applied to the fact that for Medicare and Medicaid services, they're trying to roll out a mandatory vaccination. And, um, you know, that is in control of the state because the state is the one for those that are over 65 that may not be getting a lot in Social Security. They can get some help. And their Part B premium is actually paid by the state, not the federal government from state funds because you have your own state Medicaid fund. Well, the uh, one final point is, has to go to uh, standing. You seem to rely on parens patriae a bit. And uh, would you discuss? Okay. Huh. So interesting how all of them came with parens patriae. Do you guys remember how we sent a letter to every single attorney general in the United States? And then we also sent an extra one to the Texas attorney general giving them verbiage and reminding them 
what their job is. Remember, we sent it to all 50 attorney general, telling them that they must rely on Pyron's pensionnaire, right? Remember, because it's kind of like it's their duty. So this hearing today, when I tell you is something that you have done is incredible. This is something you have done. You did that. The letters we sent to every single attorney general, I sent one to my attorney general, and then I sent one to down to Paxton in Texas. Remember guys, remember how many letters we sent? We all did that. So when was that? Do you guys remember? It was seven months ago. Kind of seems like you guys were seven months ahead by giving them exactly what they needed. I just wanted to point that out for you so you can see just how mighty that pen is and what you've actually done. Allow me to replay. Vaccinations. Uh, to argue for this vaccination, but are all of the party states uh, in the same position with respect to preemption? Uh, Your Honor, uh, certainly uh, the district court in this case, at the very least, cited that Arkansas, Wyoming, and Missouri are similarly situated with that respect, and certainly there are other states in our in the Missouri-led coalition that also have laws that are going to be preempted by this regulation. Uh, the key point here, Your Honor, just like in Mass VPA, is so long as one of us has one of these laws that would affect uh, our duly enacted legislation through an unlawful mandate, uh, we are, it, is, it does present an issue on preemption. Now, that's independent, obviously, from other interests that the states have in this case, which is the states are the administrator. It's our providers with respect to Medicaid, with Medicare, we're being asked to facilitate this program for the federal government. We have compliance costs, we have surveyors have to go out and enforce this rule. Uh, all of that uh, are, are the state's interest, Your Honor. Well, the uh, one final point is, has to go to uh, standing. You seem to rely on Perens Patria a bit. And uh, would you discuss that uh, standing and why we should apply that? Well, sure, Your Honor. And, and just to be clear, we, we do have various capacities here. We mentioned sovereign interests. We mentioned proprietary a whole plethora of them. And certainly we did invoke also a quasi-sovereign interest in the health and well-being of our citizens. For example, uh, this mandate will close the doors of many of these rural facilities that will effectively deprive our citizens of health care. Again, if you listen to this part, you will see that it is almost verbatim in certain sections to the letters that you sent out to them. As you're hearing Attorney General Jesus Osete making the argument quasi-official, their duty for the health care of their citizens, of their state, reread the letter. Reread the letter and see how those beautiful words that you wrote and you sent them are being heard right now in the Supreme Court. Would you like me to rewind that? Just a little bit, just a minute, not even. Listen. And we also are asserting rights under federal law with respect to the APA on many of these claims. That, that is, but that is not the only basis that we're seeking standing in this case. We have various other capacities that we're suing under, just like the ones I mentioned, Your Honor. Is that true of all of the uh, parties? Uh, I, I, I believe so, Your Honor, yes. Thank you. Example, in this case, the most direct example I can point to, Your Honor, is at 20-7-134 of the Arkansas Code that prohibits as a condition of employment uh, any sort of vaccination requirement. But that's somewhat ironic since he, uh, the, uh, the government uh, relies on, on them. Uh, Your Honor, uh, certainly. Uh, well, the uh, one final point is, has to go to uh, standing. You Pay seem attention. to rely on Perens Patria a bit. 
And uh, would you discuss that uh, standing and why we should apply that? Well, sure, Your Honor. And, and just to be clear, we, we do have various capacities here. We mentioned sovereign interests. We mentioned proprietary a whole plethora of them. And certainly we did invoke also a quasi-sovereign interest in the health and well-being of our citizens. For example, uh, this mandate will close the doors of many of these rural facilities that will effectively deprive our citizens of health care. And we also are asserting rights under federal law with respect to the APA on many of these claims. That, that is, but that is not the only basis that we're seeking standing in this case. We have various other capacities that we're suing under, just like the ones I mentioned, Your Honor. Is that true of all of the uh, parties? Uh, I, I, I believe so, Your Honor, yes. Thank you. There was a there was a question. Sorry, Chief. No, I was just going to uh, ask you about uh, the the spending clause context. In other words, we're not just dealing with federal law in the abstract. We're dealing with uh, a provision that says Congress authorized the, well the secretary to uh, uh, ensure compliance with requirements that the secretary finds necessary in the interest of the health and safety of patients. That's very broad, and I I think. You, I, will you agree that you they have broader authority because it's in a spending clause provision? I mean, you signed the you signed the contract. Well, sure, and and even in the spending clause, I would say two responses to that you're on. First, even in the spending clause context, as just as Alito mentioned earlier, the states are entitled to clear notice. So there is whatever conditions the secretary does state, they have to derive from unambiguous grants of statutory authority. And in this case, Your Honor, we, we respectfully disagree with my friend Mr. Fletcher because he only cites certain parts of these provisions, for example, with respect to the hospital in this application, he ignores the such other requirements language that precedes the secretary's authority to regulate health and safety. And many of those provisions, for example, E1 through 8, none of those talk about immunization. They talk about record keeping. They talk about uh, uh, discharge procedures. Uh, they talk uh, about Mr. many... Mr. Rossetti, really, do you think that the CMS head and that the secretary of HHS are bookkeepers with respect to this statute? Do you think that they don't have responsibility to protect the safety of these two incredibly vulnerable patient populations? So that was key too, guys. So I'm going to leave it there because tomorrow we're going to analyze the whole thing. And we're also going to talk about how the actual news source that published the whole Ashley Biden diary is in dire straits. We'll talk about that. Oh, tomorrow's Friday. Today's Friday. I'll do a show anyway, maybe, but I'm doing one on Sunday. So uh, we'll preemptively talk about it before movie night. Gosh, darn it. Um, it's really important that you listen to their words, but again, that section right there was the words you sent them. So when people tell you it's so stupid, you're just writing letters, doing this, doing that, don't listen because it was your words that you heard in the Supreme Court today. Your child that mailed off the letter participated in getting that heard in the Supreme Court today. That's what you need to remember. Uh, this week is going to be quite busy in regards to news. We're going to be going over the Seven Nation Army and what is really going on there and how we can uh, carefully say that um, it might turn out to be a lot weirder than we thought. Uh, a lot weirder than we thought. Uh, on that note, I want to wish you guys a fantastic evening. Uh, I just got back to Cleveland, uh, and the weather is lots and lots of snow. So I'm, I'm enjoying my time with my cat in the snow. 
until I can actually drive uh, tomorrow during the day since the roads are so slick. It is, it's, it's quite bad. Um, God bless everyone. I'll see you guys next week, if not movie night. Paranoia is in bloom, the PR transmissions will resume. They'll try to push drugs to keep us all dumbed down and hope that we will never see the truth around. Another promise, another seed, another package lie to keep us trapped in greed. You see the green belt wrapped around our minds, endless red tape to keep the truth confined. 